welcome to the Why To Stay podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Perry. This is Episode 2, A Region of the Mind, released on the third week of December, 2018. This is a recording of my conversation with Donal G. Savoie. Donal Savoie is an author and the Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance at the Université de Moncton. He's recognized both nationally and internationally as an expert in public administration and regional development. His advice on public governance has been sought after by governments around the world, and his work has been recognized with him being invested as an officer in the Order of Canada, and he's also in the Order of New Brunswick. He has published or co-published more than 200 scholarly articles and an amazing 45 books. His books cover various subjects, but he's most recognized for his thinking and writing on how governments work, or don't, what they're good at, and how they respond to the needs of their citizens, especially in regions that are slow-growing or economically depressed. From his career with various roles within the federal government, he's known as the father of ACOA for his work in establishing the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency in the 1980s. Donald's most recent book is Looking for Bootstraps, Economic Development in the Maritimes. In the book, he attempts to dive into some of the reasons that the economy of the Maritimes has been traditionally depressed when compared to the rest of Canada. As you'll hear, he finds that some of the roots of the problem lie in the very origins of the Confederation itself. He talks about how slanted our national politics and government policies have always been, and still are, and tilted towards what works best for Ontario and Quebec. Although this isn't the only reason we find ourselves in our current situation with respect to government finances, he argues that we really have to understand Canada's political history in order to set our future course. The now makes the case that if Maritimers are going to overcome our many challenges to make our economy more diverse and vibrant, and to make sure that our future generations have the option to stay rather than move away, we have to act together as a region, celebrate our successful entrepreneurs and build on our strengths, and in some cases, reject federal funding from Ottawa when it doesn't make sense for our long-term growth. I'm also really excited to feature Matt Boudreau as our musical guest this week. Matt is a singer-songwriter from Petit Rocher, New Brunswick, and the music you'll hear is from his latest album, Goelin. The song is called 800 Kilometres. And I've been listening to this album a lot lately, and I can tell you it's really excellent. In the song featured in the musical interlude, Matt's sound comes across my ear as a cross between Matt Mays and Bruce Springsteen, and it's been stuck in my head for a good three weeks now. I'll put some links in the show notes where you can find Matt and some of his music. At any rate, the conversation between Donald Savoie and I got off to a running start. We'd been trying to set up this recording for over six months, and when we finally met, Donald jumped right into the conversation, and I wasn't quite ready with the recording equipment, so I didn't get the proper introduction on the recorded part of the conversation. Because of that, the recording starts with me asking about his book, Looking for Bootstraps. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Donald Savoie. So I wanted to, of course, we want to talk a lot about uh, looking for bootstraps, but before we do, uh, actually, I've just started another one of your books. It's uh, your 2009 book, um, From Book to Ishmi. <laughs> yes. And uh, that, that's one I've, I, I've just started. And, and one of the, I, I guess in the prologue, you talk about how during all your career in, in Ottawa and, and elsewhere, you know, overseas, you, when you've been met with something that was a little bit uh, hard to explain or maybe you needed explaining to you or, you know, set the context for me, you would say, I'm from Bhaktushmi. Well, actually, there's a funny story to it, but uh, I was asked to be um, 
a visiting fellow in Ottawa when Reg Alcock was the president of the Treasury Board, and they were overhauling the accountability regime of the federal government, or, or sought or tried to. And Reg Alcock was a giant of a man, 6'10", 300 and some pounds, just a new, and he was very bright, he's passed away, he was very bright, um, very inquisitive, and, but he'd have 10 ideas a minute, and some were kind of off the wall, and his senior public servants had problems uh, trying to figure out where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. And the, the senior bureaucrats would say, can you make sense of what he's trying to say? And uh, so he'd come up with something. I said, Reg, or Minister, look, I'm from Bookstores Me. Can you explain that? Let's assume that you're a Tim Horton bookstore. Somebody's asking you, can you shake that down, explain it so that they get it? And I used to do that all the time in Ottawa or wherever. I'm from Bookstores Me. And can you so Reg Alcock, this, this is the funny story. I don't know if you reached the part in the book, but. Yes. He was in Halifax and had to come to Fredericton, so he was he drove. When he ran Moncton, he said, I'm going to go to Bookdoosh. So he went to Bookdoosh and had an assistant with a camera. Went to the Tim Horton Bookdoosh, got his assistant to go in with him to take a photo, so he wanted to give it to me. Say, I've been to your Tim Horton Bookdoosh. <laughs> so he walked in, assistant with a camera, took a photo, and the, the, the clerk, the sales clerk, got a bit worried because he had a big crest government of Canada and it was 6'9 and so on. So sure. she went to see the manager. So the manager came out, went to Reg Alcock, looked up and said, uh, can I help you with something? And Reg Alcock, being Reg Alcock, said, well, you don't know me, but in Ottawa, I'm the big man. The manager looked up, well, you're a big man in book tours too. That was hilarious. Uh, so I used to use that when trying to, when something was thrown at me that I didn't quite grasp, I'd say, hey, I'm from Book Tours, can you explain that? Is it a way to kind of express, you know, a bit of humility, but say, you know, explain it to me in terms that, you know, somebody from my hometown would understand? Well, it, it, it has two purposes. One is explain to me in terms that people get it, and academics are probably the worst sinners. And so I've always pushed it, I've always pushed myself to explain it so the folks in book so people who read me would understand. That's the first point. The second point, and this is terribly important to me, that, and it's the whole essence of a lot of my work, is roots do matter. Where you're from matters. Who you are, it defines who you are. Your roots really explain where you come from, what's your purpose, and where you're going. And and, and I'm from Bukhtosh, me, I want to establish, make it very clear. I'm very proud to be from Bukhtosh. I'm very proud of my roots, and that's, that's the point. You've, you've written that you're, you're an Acadian, of course, but you're a, you're a maritimer. Uh, and so how, is, how did growing up in a, in a small Acadian village in rural New Brunswick, where the rural maritimes, how did that kind of inform how you've, uh, how you've gone about your, your career in, in public administration and, and your academic studies. How, how do you think that's informed the way you've, you've seen the world? Oh, it's, it's shaped my thinking. And you're from Cambridge Meadows. I'm sure it, shaped your, it still shapes who you are and your thinking. And being from that small Canadian village shaped my interests, shaped who I am, defined who I am. And, and uh, it makes the whole case that uh, nothing is more important to me than roots. And if you can't grasp where you're from and where, and 
and what it means to you, uh, I think you're going to have a very difficult go at it. I become a very much, a, uh, as you can tell in that book, I become very much a maritime nationalist. I really have become this. This, uh, what matters to me, and in my in my, my upcoming book, I get into it as well. What come to matter a great deal to me is my maritime, my maritimeness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm. Uh, I, I I think the maritime provinces have had a a raw deal. Uh, I think the maritime provinces have been live in a country that's been rigged. Um, we uh, we got, and people don't like to hear this. I know that. Certainly people from Interior in Quebec don't like to hear this. Um, but this country is rigged for Interior in Quebec. That's how it was defined. And in fact, we're in Fredericton at the moment, and Albert Smith, who was Premier, uh, 65, 66, 67, fought against Confederation. Didn't he didn't fight against Canada, but fought Confederation to the nail. And he had an incredible amount of foresight because he predicted exactly what was going to happen. He called for a Tripoli Senate. This is in this is just pre-Confederation. Yeah, the, the former the, the, the premier of New Brunswick at the time, right. and the lieutenant governor at the time did something that constitutionally uh, was inappropriate. Constitutionally, was not lawful. He sent a message to London that uh, New Brunswick wanted to participate in the Confederation debate. Albert Smith had said no after Charlottetown. He just ignored responsible government and had been in, introduced in Nova Scotia in 1848. Mm -hmm. So he completely ignored it and sent this message, which was the basis for the election in, 19, in 1867. And so a lot of New Brunswickers knew um, uh, Tupper in Nova Scotia uh, tried to fight it, but he was, he was, when you had the colonial office, when you had Queen Victoria, when you have Sir John and MacDonald, uh, there was no way that we could win. And the basis of this country was the impasse between Ontario and Quebec. They couldn't make it work. Right. So they said, well, we can't make it work, let's get an honest broker, which was the role of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. PEI in 1867 said, no, this, this country is not going to work. And so they resisted for five years. and. And that's one of the reasons that explain our slow growth. It's also one of the reasons why I've become a maritime nationalist. To me, what matters now is my three maritime provinces, our three maritime provinces. You, you write in the book that uh, you know the, the original uh, sort of meeting at Charlottetown was sort of hijacked by those from, from Upper Canada and, and Lower Canada. Um, so we... They, they sort of pulled the group into something that was more convenient for them than maybe what the maritime provinces had been originally talking about. Um, so is that, does that pattern hold? Is, it, is that something we continue oh, to see? Uh, it hold, well, it, in 1865, uh, the Charlottetown Conference, uh, Canada and Quebec crashed a party. It was not their party, it was our party, and it was held in Charlottetown to talk about maritime union. Uh, the three lieutenant governors were supportive. There was some complication, but that's what the whole purpose. And Sir John Macdonald, George Etienne Cartier, and George Brown came and said, look, can we talk about something wider here, and that's called Canada, and we got hooked into it. And it's been like that ever since. We are the only federation. Uh, even Russia is doing better than us. We are the only federation that doesn't have an upper house to speak on behalf of the smaller regions. The United States has it. Australia, which has the Westminster model, has it. Germany has it. Russia has it. We don't. 
talk about what you mean by that. Like we, we, we have a Senate, as everyone knows, but. Well, but Senate is, in, in, the, in the United States, there are two senators per state. Right. In Australia, there are six per state, per province. Uh, and their role is to speak on behalf of the regions, of, of, of the states. Whether you're from New York, Texas, or California, you only have two senators. Uh, if you're from from Wyoming, you have you, you have two senators. Mm -hmm. it, it it does level the play, the uh, playing field. We don't. We uh, Sir John McDonald and George Brown made sure we wouldn't have because they were afraid of regionalism. They were trying to fight regionalism. They were saying Quebec and Ontario was brought low because of regionalism. We're not going to allow it. So they coined Sir John McDonald coined this phrase "sober second thought." It's ironic because Sir Johnny wasn't sober a day in his life. Uh, there you go. <laughs> he coined this phrase probably on a, on a morning with a hangover. Uh, and so the Senate has been asked to, to be a, a house of sober second thought. Doesn't say anything about the regions. Doesn't play that role. Nobody does. And so the political power in this country is in the hands of Ontario and Quebec. You win government in Ontario, you win a majority mandate in Quebec. We have 32 seats. Uh, that's the only voice that we have in Ottawa. We have um, four provinces out of six, but we only have 32 seats. We really politically, in terms of who holds political power, we do not matter. And we see it. Now, we, 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 uh, this region sent 32 seats, 32 liberals uh, in, a liberal, in a liberal government. In the last election. In the last election. We almost lost our Supreme Court judge. Prime Minister says, well, I'm thinking of taking it away and giving it to, yeah. no other region would tolerate that. Certainly if we had a Senate be much more effective, that would not have been debated. The Energy East Pipeline, that fell. Now you can argue it was, the, you know, it was part of the economics. It may be, but I also think it was part of the politics. Uh, we have the Minister of Akwa, and so I was being referred to as the father of Akwa because Mulroney asked me to write the report. Mm -hmm. That's the first time we have a minister from Agawa, from uh, from Toronto. He's from Mississauga. So the minister responsible for Agawa yeah. presently is not from. No, not from first time. Canada. First time since we established Agawa. I was there when it was established. I remember vividly. That has to send a message. Yeah, of course we don't really matter right. politically, and if we don't matter politically, then so national policies, national programs are defined uh, with the Ontario and Quebec. It's it's rigged for Ontario and Quebec, and the frustration you've seen in Western Canada the rise of the Reform Party, the rise of a uh, Tripoli movement for the Senate. Uh, Western Canada has felt it strongly as well. What, what I've always been, always been difficult for me to grasp is why in the 1980s, 1990s, when Western Canada was pushing very hard for a Tripoli Senate, why were we asleep at the switch? Why didn't we say to Western Canada, hey, let's join in. Yeah, we understand what you're after. And it, it, it is more important for us to go after a Tripoli Senate than it is for you guys and gals. And having three maritime provinces, maybe our interests are somewhat divided when they need to be? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is uh, there's a political reasons. I think there were, when you have a liberal prime minister and liberal premiers, uh, they don't want to challenge the, liber the uh, you know, the partisanship uh, plays a great deal. But also there's been a view in this region that uh, premiers uh, are the real spokesperson for the regions, for, for the provinces. If you give it to the Senate, what happens to them? So it's like guarding turf. I think that has been far too important, and I don't think the premiers have grasped that 
they, they, can, they can bark in the media all they want. It has no impact in Ottawa. And so, but that ship has sailed. I think Western Canada has lost interest in the Tripoli Senate after Harper became Prime Minister. Uh, but the problem of regionalism is not going to go away. It'll be there. It's still there. In mm -hmm. uh, looking for bootstraps, you said that uh, the Trudeau government is the most Ontario-centric government in, in Canadian history. That's a bold statement. It is. Perhaps Sir Johnny Macdonald would have given a good run, but uh, Sir Johnny had to deal with Georges-Étienne Cartier. And so uh, it's very much, if you look at the chief of staff to ministers, they're all come from Queen's Park. If you look at the key cabinet ministers, they're all from Ontario, uh, the whole bunch of them. Uh, we get the president of the Treasury Board, we get um, agriculture, uh, veterans affairs. Mm -hmm. Some of the, uh, the less powerful members of cabinet. Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, as you've you covered extensively in your writing and, and also in governing from the center, well, not only is it now Ontario-centric, but more of that power is concentrated in, in the prime minister's office. Oh, uh, there's no question about that. And uh, when I uh, published that book, Governing from the Center, in 1999, uh, initially you say, well, you overstated the case and so on. Nobody argues that anymore. Very few people would argue uh, that I overstated the case. There have been some books that have come out to challenge me, but the challenge was uh, more from an historical perspective. And uh, certainly if you compare the government today to the Pearson era, um, there's a tendency to govern from the center a lot more today. Even more now? Oh yeah, absolutely. Look, we declared war in Afghanistan and Iraq. No, in Afghanistan. By two different prime ministers from two different uh, political parties, a Tory and a liberal. And the decision was made in the prime minister's office by advisors and military people. The minister of defense, the minister of uh, foreign affairs, in both cases were not even present at that meeting in the Prime Minister's office. It never was approved in Cabinet. Cabinet was informed. The Minister of Defense and Minister of Foreign Affairs were informed of the decision. That is what you call governing from the center. Or even more recently when the Prime Minister told the Minister of Finance at a meeting with journalists, no, no, don't answer, I'll answer the question. And the journalist said, well, I'd like to direct this question to the Minister of Finance. And the Prime Minister said, well, I'm the Prime Minister. I'll take the question. I think there's, there's several reasons, actually. One, an important one, is permanent election campaign. We don't have an election campaign, then it's over and we govern for four years. Campaigns go on all the time. And a good reason for that is the role uh, of the media, 24-hour news cycle. So prime ministers and leaders of political parties have to be on their guard at all times. So it's a permanent election campaign. I think the new media uh, social media is playing into it. It's very. It's much more difficult for politicians to ease up and try to strike deals amongst you know one another. Uh, so there's a number of reasons why we do govern uh, at the center uh, these days, and it has special implications for the maritime provinces. Talk about that, yeah. because yeah, that's the logical outcome. If you govern from the center, you're going to worry about Ontario and Quebec. Where you're going to get the seats? You're not going to worry about the maritime provinces. And it, 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 it cripples our democracy in many ways. I'll give you a case in point. Ottawa, the current government, decided to uh, launch a very uh, ambitious infrastructure program. And there's no question in my mind, there ought not to be any questions in anybody, in any Canadian, that Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal need investment in infrastructure. No question. 
the last thing we need in New Brunswick is investment in infrastructure. But we have a national program, so we need our tiny bit, 2% of the budget or whatever. And so we, we have infrastructure in New Brunswick at the moment that can, hold, can deal with about 2.5 to 3 million people. We only have 750. We're adding to it. Not only is it costing 50% to New Brunswick taxpayers, but once the road is built or the building is built, the maintaining cost is 100% is, is us, it's, you know, it's, it's the provincial government. So this policy was established for the good of Ontario, Montreal, and so on, and I accept that, I recognize that. But because we can't deal with regions here, we think we have to have everything at the national level, it, it cripples the economic growth of this province. Because we can't adjust those national policies no. to our own realities. There's no Senate to say, hey, well, well this, this doesn't work. You write that as politicians are concerned, it's more of a means to an end. It's maybe their heart is in the right place, but it, where the rubber meets the road, it, it's, a, it's a method to be able to say that you've done something. It's a, something you can show that, okay, we're bringing, we're bringing home the bacon. Regional Development Programming uh, was launched by John D. Finbaker and Alvin, Alvin Hamilton. They were both from Saskatchewan. They saw the problem. The Prime Minister was not from Ontario and Quebec. And I think he understood the regional problem uh, fairly well. And so they decided to do something about it. So I think that was genuine. It wasn't so much. But they said the only way we can do something about it is if we focus on regions that really need it. And Trudeau in 68, I think, bought into that. Him and Jean Marchand said, if we spend anything less than 80% of our budget, east of Trois-Rivières, Three Rivers, uh, it'll be a failure. So we need to focus on Atlantic Canada and slow growth regions if we're serious about this. I think at, the, at 68 they meant it. When to deal with the sovereignness, they decided that they had to extend that to Montreal. Well, when you extend a regional development program into Montreal, you've lost control. Uh, that was the beginning of the end of, of, uh, of regional development and the start of Port Barrel politics. Uh, at the moment, and I like saying this, I really do enjoy saying this, uh, every postal code in Canada is covered by a regional development agency. Bay Street, Toronto is covered by a regional has development agency. Has a yeah. regional development agency? Yeah, every, every postal, every area. So how do, you, how do you explain regional development? No, I think you explain this is a political game and um, we're going to use it you know, for political gains. That's where we lost it, and I think a lot of our economic development programming, uh, the 1970s, when the sovereignist movement began to raise its, to, to get going, to become visible, I think it had a profound impact on the way Ottawa thinks. So uh, every, every postal code has a regional development agency assigned to it. We are, well, we're a slower growing region, so both economically and demographically faster aging, we're losing political clout, we don't have, I mean, we're governing more and more from the centre, so we're losing clout that way. It seems if we want to try to make an attempt to overcome some of our big challenges in the Maritimes, it, it's going to fall largely to us now, by us, I mean, you know, our politicians, our government institutions, our, our business community, individuals, so uh, the challenges are immense. Where, where to start? Where's the best place, do you think, to start? Well, you know, 
30 years ago, I'll come back to that, but I won't end there. I'll just start with that. Uh, 30 years ago, 28% of federal public service was in the National Capital Region, Ottawa, Gatineau. Today, it's 42%. And so when you have young university graduates who want to serve in government, and many do because of the advantages, whatever it's pension or whatever else, uh, you're graduating from UNB or Dow or University of Moncton, high tail for Ottawa, because that's where the jobs are. They're no longer in the region. And I think if we had a Senate that was effective, we would have said, well, you can't have, we're, we're the most centralized country in the world. And we're, we're, we're the biggest, second biggest in terms of geography. We've centralized the federal bureaucracy to an extent that it wouldn't, it doesn't happen anywhere else. It happens here. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a case that I've been, I've talked to, I won't get into the names, but federal cabinet ministers have been telling me, oh, going back 16 years, starting 16 years ago, saying New Brunswick is the only bilingual province in Canada. The Translation Bureau uh, in Ottawa should be located to New Brunswick. I said, of course, it makes sense. Ontario doesn't want to be bilingual, declare. Ontario, Quebec, no other problems. We're the only officially bilingual. And with the means of communication, those thousands of 1,200 jobs in translation in Ottawa could be easily re relocated somewhere in New Brunswick. And it would be a statement that New Brunswick, uh, with all the challenges, has decided to be officially bilingual. Why don't we acknowledge that and move those 1,200? Yeah. Now, cabinet ministers have told me we want to do that. That's a great idea. We're doing it. We're doing it. I've been hearing for 17 years, we're doing it. I'm still waiting. Still waiting. And so, is that the solution? I've come, I'm getting old, I've got gray hair, and, uh, and I'm very much a maritime nationalist. I'm going to say something that will probably, in a way, surprise, if not shock your listeners. I think we've reached a point in the maritime provinces of Atlantic Canada, our game plan should be when it comes to Ottawa. The weaker the federal government, the better. We ought not to be there to have a strong central government, a strong federal government, because it only works in favor of Ontario and Quebec. No one else. So we've been, we've been drugged by transfer payments of one kind or another, whether it's EI, equalization, so on. We've been drugged to say, favor a strong central government, because if you don't have a strong central government, you're not going to have these transfer payments. Well, these transfer payments, is uh, guilt money that Ontario and Quebec is sending our way because of the guilt of national policies, the way that our national institutions are rigged, so they send guilt money. Well, guilt money doesn't create economic development. Right. And, so, and so all of the new instruments of economic policy are really designed for Ontario and Quebec. So if, 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 if you're talking to maritime nationalists, the weaker Ottawa is, the better. That, it, it took me a while to figure that one out, but that's where I am. Now, the point you just made, I agree fully with you. The solution is to look, look to us, look in the mirror. I favor maritime union. I do. Political union? Yeah. But I, I'm not naive. Um, it's not going to happen uh, in my lifetime. And, and it's probably not the panacea that some hold it out to be. Well, I, I think it holds a lot of advantages, and I can get into it. Um, but convincing maritimers that's the way to go uh, it's I mean, I, I've I'm there but I'm a lonely cowboy out in the meadow singing there's nobody singing with me so I accept look give it up give it up several uh, I remind you I remind your listeners that we would be so favorite maritime union 
So the notion that Acadians worry about, I'm an Acadian, very proud Acadian, but I'm, I favor maritime union. And if Louis Bichot could favor maritime union, so can I. And the notion that, um, well, if we join maritime union, we'll become like Acadians in Nova Scotia and PEI. Well, the, that argument is precisely what Quebec separatists are saying to us. Well, you're you're dead ducks, so we're gonna. So I, I have problems with that argument. There's something bigger here, and so we're not gonna look. We're not gonna have maritime union. But there's something that Frank McKenna told me that still rattles around me, and he said one of the biggest controversial, one of the most controversial decisions he made was to have New Brunswick license plate made in Amherst, Nova Scotia. He said many New Brunswickers said, "Are you crazy, Frank?" You're giving a license plate to somebody in Nova Scotia. That, to me, defines the problem. Uh, we have hospitals in Amherst, Nova Scotia, and one in Sackville. No sense for that, other than there's a there's a line that somebody, our bird, you know, decided after the loyalists came that we needed two provinces. Uh, that's 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 why we're there. I could go on and on and on. Um, I remember Premier Savage of Nova Scotia telling me, you know what's my biggest challenge to promote economic development in Nova Scotia? No. Every time I go to Toronto to hustle business, Frank McKenna was there two weeks before. That's my biggest challenge. So it's a maritime union. When Prime Minister Mulroney asked me to write the report for ARCOA, and this has it, it's been imprinted in my brain and will never leave, I, he asked me to consult over 120 Chinese Canadians premiers, ministers, business people, and so on. I was in Sydney, Cape Breton. I sat at a table about this size. There was about 20 business people there. And I was introduced, I was looking for ideas on the establishment of ACOA. And I remember as if it was yesterday, it, was in, it, it shocked me. I was young, not as secure maybe as I am now, not as confident as I am now, because uh, uh, today I would take them on. But one businessman said to me, look, if there's a choice between economic growth in Halifax or Toronto, send it to Toronto. Halifax is too much. I was shocked. As a maritime, really? I was shocked. He said that. Literally said that. And I took it and wrote it down. Mad as hell, but I wrote it down. Today I would, I would tell him where to go in no uncertain <laughs> terms. Uh, but that, that defines the problem. How, you know, we, 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 have, we have opportunities to grow. But we're not going to grow if we're going to piss against one another between Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI. There's something in common between Cape Breton and Northern New Brunswick. There's something in common. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm very proud of Halifax. I go to Halifax, poof, I don't know if you've been there lately, but it, it is, it's booming, it's vibrant, it's a growth pole. Even politicians cannot stop it now. Even they can't. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it's, it's a jewel. And every maritimer should be proud of it. There was a study done which really tickled my fancy, as I would say, uh, federal public servants. Now, I don't know when it was done, but they asked federal public servants from across the country, if you were to, to be transferred, and if you didn't have a choice to be transferred, but you had to pick the city where you want to transfer, where would it be? Number one was Halifax. Really? Yeah. Because it's got everything. It's got the universities, it's got the military, it's got the water, it's got the harbor, it's got... It's got um, New Canadians, dynamic new entrepreneurs, 
as a leading businessman in New Brunswick told me, you go there, you put your hand in your pocket because you don't know who's going to go in there with <laughs> and try to grab it out of you. And, but that's great. That's what entrepreneurs ought to be, mm -hmm. should be. And Halifax has got that. So I think we all should be, what's good for Halifax can be good for us too. And so I don't see it as a, as a threat or so on. I know there's a lot of rivalry between St. John and Moncton. I think St. John look at Moncton, oh, they got everything. And somebody said, well, it's the same thing between Moncton and Halifax. Moncton couldn't care less about St. John, but they look at Halifax, it gets everything. Stop that nonsense. Stop that. I mean, be happy for St. John, be happy for Moncton, be happy for, let's see if we can make this thing work, because nobody else is going to make it work. You play to, play to our individual strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You, and I, I kind of tripped on this when you were talking about this in, in the book. You said, you know, we should uh, we should fight against pulling everything to the center, pulling everything to southern Ontario, pulling all the growth there because you know it really is needed here, the economic development and, and the aid from from uh, federalism. But at the same time, we shouldn't think twice about instead of establishing something in, like you say, Moncton or St. John. If it goes to Halifax, then fair enough. Let's 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 celebrate that. There there has to be a way if you, if as you say that. There's never going to be maritime union, political union, I geographic union. There has to be a way to, to not work at cross-purposes to each other, though. Absolutely. What's to stop us from having a common maritime license plate? What's, what's to stop us, really, from having a maritime liquor control commission? What's to stop us from having a, a, mar a maritime hospital commission? Hey, nothing is stopping us. It's, it's a region of the mind. It's not geography. Let's have a region of the mind. Let's try to see if we cannot make this thing work. And let's break down these little barriers. Pour fuir de toi dans ma mémoire. Je ferai 
t'asseoir dans mon petit cœur et au bord de la mer, c'est toujours l'hiver. Y'a pas un joint, y'a pas de bouteille qui me fera oublier qu'au réveil, je m'ennuie de toi pareil. I saw marijuana uh, there's new stores mm-hmm. I can tell you I don't smoke marijuana I don't inhale or exhale I'm not into <laughs> that but I see I see these government stores these massive beautiful new government stores why are we doing that why would not turn it over to the private sector and say you go you give it a go you never know it could give rise to 10 new entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, that's the way to go is uh, and uh, to have a, 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 mar- a marijuana store in New, in, in, in New Brunswick and one in Amherst uh, through p- public funding, whereas private sector would have those lo- smaller stores and make a go of it and make profit and start business. That's why the other part of the book at the end say, look, w- we need a vibrant private sector. We do. It's not, uh, it's not right-wing or left-wing bullshit. That's, that's not that. If we're going to grow the economy, we're going to have to have the, the Harrison McCain of this world, who had a vision and idea. Say, look, I we got potatoes here. We can do something with this. Look what he's done. Yeah, yeah. And um, look at the Irvings. Look at Keith Irving. I mean, you can knock him all you want, but Keith Irving was a, an absolute genius, an entrepreneur genius. Can you imagine Keith Irving, born and raised in Southern Ontario? Poof. <laughs> <laughs> With, with all the opportunity for yeah, development there. Yeah. yeah, he was pulling against gravity here. Yeah. And and he was quite successful pulling against gravity. But So we need to celebrate our entrepreneurs, our local business people, our, our capacity locally to get things done. But, but I sense that you, when you say that, you don't necessarily mean that free market rules, government has to get out of the way, but rather government needs to create, and our own mindset too, need to create the conditions where small business can flourish. Small business is pretty important to the maritime economy. Totally. And if the government is not going to do that, who is? The government has to set the circumstances to let the entrepreneur, the small business flourish. That ought to be the role of government. 
um, encourage entrepreneur, encourage the little guy and the little gal that wants to get going. Uh, instead of having these massive stores selling marijuana, uh, encourage the little guy and the little gal that says, I'm going to start a little business with this. Encourage that. Mm -hmm. And who knows? Eventually, you may have a leading businessman like a Harrison McCain. But, but you've got to start somewhere, and it's not by having government. Now, I'm not one to argue, let's do it with government. Let's, no, no. We've, we've been down that road. Sure. That doesn't work. Uh, surely there's something bigger uh, that, that, that government needs to address, and, and, and the public sector has an important role to play. Uh, no question about that. Uh, can it create wealth? No. Can it create circumstances for wealth? Yes. Can it create circumstances that the little guy and the little gal can get a good education, good health care, and flourish, and so on, have the security of, of, of knowing where, this thi where the next day is coming? Absolutely, that's the role of government. Which can pay for the social safety net. Exactly. That governments. Exactly. I don't buy into this left wing, right wing. Uh, this is all, excuse the expression, all bullshit to me. There's something much bigger here. Is that kind of thinking going by the way of the it should be the dodo a it little should bit? be it can, should be can you do you sense that it is or? yes I think it is and I think it's because that battle has been won and fought nobody would want it to return to the days when two percent of the government budget was on social services and education nobody would want to go back to those days massive poverty yeah nobody it would be we fought that battle we won it. The Great Depression was an eye-opener for a lot of people that the business cycle has its, has its normal cycle and there's a role that government needs to play. That battle has been won and lost. It's no longer a question of um, uh, where can government get the resources. It's more of a question how do we grow the economy and how can both sectors make a contribution to grow the economy. That's the issue. That's the challenge. Yeah. Left-wing, left left-wing is... And right wing has been—it's it, a dated, dated debate. Speaking more about what government can do to create those conditions, you read, or you sorry, you wrote that uh, in the past, it's been a, a bit of a this and that, hit and miss type of approach. Um, are there concrete steps? Is there a, a, an agenda to follow for a, a, a government, a provincial government, or maritime provincial governments? to follow the, if they really, truly, honestly wanted to make the kind of progress and the commitments that you're talking about? Sure. Sure. I, I've, um, the government of Brunswick can do a number of things. One is uh, look at its neighboring provinces and say, how, how can we share the burden? How can we make public service more readily available but, but, but saving taxpayers money so we can use it for other purposes? Um, how do we deal with this aging population that's coming at us fast and, and furious? And, and what can the role of the federal government be to help us deal with that challenge? Um, how do we gear our universities, our school system, to um, more towards the economy? I think I've been in academia all my life, uh, but I think universities can play a much larger role. How so? Oh, well, uh, we, uh, we tend to talk to ourselves a bit too much. In, in academia? Yeah, we really do. And if you're asking an entrepreneur, if you put the onus on the entrepreneur to come and knocking on our door, they're not going to knock on our door. They don't know where to knock. <laughs> they, they don't know where to knock. They, 
have a pretty busy agenda building a business and they would know what to ask. Uh, and so we need, I think, academics, especially in economics, uh, in management, marketing, engineering, science. I think we need to build bridges to the private sector. It's far more efficient than it's been. We, had a lot, we have a lot of innovative ideas that can be applied. I think UNB is doing a pretty good job at it, by the way. Uh, but we need to do more. Um, and and uh, do the key to economic growth in the future will be innovation. Uh, it's awfully difficult to ask for an entrepreneur in Booktosh to be innovative, or in Cambridge Meadows to be innovative. I think in the city it's much easier. We have a very rural region. I mean, we, we are now at the threshold of between 50% urban, 50% rural. Now, 100 years ago, 1918, Ontario was at its threshold. So 100 years ago, Ontario made the transition. We're still making the transition. And that has huge implications for us. If you want to start a business in downtown Fredericton or Moncton or St. John, not much of an issue. Put up your shingle, start a business. If you want to start a business in rural New Brunswick, where 50% rural, it's much more of a challenge. You have, a, you have to deal with the environment. You have to deal with uh, a number of issues that because usually in the rural area it's going to be natural resources. So there's all kinds of constraints that an entrepreneur faces there mm -hmm. that an entrepreneur in urban areas doesn't have to face. So we need to address that. Uh, rural New Brunswick is not about to disappear. So some you, you write that it's important too when considering making it easier for businesses to start or continue to flourish, not to forget the rural. Yeah. part of our, yeah. our maritimes. Absolutely, because we can't, because too much of our maritime is rural. Sure. Uh, it's the hundred years ago threshold that Ontario went and we're going now. Absolutely, and, and you know, we have uh, indigenous communities, their impact on an on, on entrepreneur wanting to start a business, the environment, um, I can go through the whole gamut. So we need to address that. All, it's not for a lack of, a lack of agenda, it's a lack of willpower. Is that is that the stumbling block? The sure, it's lack of political willpower. It, it's not. It's not lack of uh, knowledge or, or no. direction. It's just no, no. The political will. Yeah. See, one guy. I, I don't want to get into politics, but one guy. I was, uh, <laughs> in fact, coming over from Moncton today. I was driving my wife, and I told my wife, "You know who was a real good premier, hands-on premier, Frank McKenna. He knew what he had to be done. He was not for turning." Um, he pushed the agenda as much as he could. Um, he created economic opportunities out of very little. Uh, and he was not afraid to spend political capital. So we need that kind of leadership. Fearless. Fearless, yeah. yeah. Like him, let's, let's go. If we can imagine for a minute that we do get that kind of fearless leadership in, in all three maritime provinces, really. Yeah. We, if I read what you're saying, and I believe I, do, I can, it's that we really need to act more in concert with each other. Yep. So let's say for the sake of argument, we have courageous governments uh, in our provincial capitals who are willing to take on that agenda. There still leaves a bit of a, a problem that you talk about in the book uh, with our own, our own uh, preconceptions, our own attitudes. Um, it surprised me a little bit when I read it that you, you sort of gave a bit of a it was Stephen Harper's comment about the culture of defeat. And, and you sort of 
you sort of defended him a little bit. And I, was, I did. I was a little surprised to see that you, you defended I, I him do. being taken out of context. I do. And here's why. He said there's a culture of defeatism in Atlantic Canada. It got every Atlantic Canadian, many Atlantic Canadians worked up and upset. That's one half of that sentence. The other half of that sentence that people tend to forget that he said uh, was because of n decisions from national political institutions over 150 years, there's a culture of defeatism in Atlantic Canada. And that part is key to understanding why we have we have to have to deal with that culture. And so I don't think Stephen Harper was that wrong. I also remind your listener, and I'm not, look, Tory liberals, I voted uh, any which way. I voted NDP some time ago. I voted liberal, I voted conservative. So I, it's not a partisan thing. Uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, a big supporter of Frank McKenna because who he was, what he brought. Um, it's, it's not about politics. But I would remind listeners uh, that Stephen Harper bought a $28 billion shipbuilding contract to Halifax. It went under his watch. I haven't seen much of that lately. And there's big investment to be made in Canada. It tends to go to Ontario and Quebec now. Whereas Harper, much like Diefenberger, and the point I'm making here is that if you have a prime minister that's not from Ontario and Quebec, they seem, over the years, they seem to grasp it. They seem to see that there's something more to this country than Ontario and Quebec. Mm -hmm. That national unity is not a code word for, you know, for what matters in Quebec. So if there is a, a kernel of truth uh, in that statement of, of the, the culture of defeat, uh, we, you've written, we, have a, we, ha we do have a bit of trouble with an attitude here of uh, maybe less than can do uh, yeah. attitude. What what can we do collectively and individually to sort of get ourselves beyond that? Get ourselves beyond the the idea that we can't. Knowledge is the key. Understanding why we have we've dealt with that challenge. Um, I met an entrepreneur from Fredericton who called. I think it was because of that actually. A young entrepreneur, I thirty years old. He said Call, called about the book. Yeah, he said I'd like to meet you. I, s I had lunch with this, driving through Moncton, and I sat down. I thought, geez, there's hope. There is hope. This young entrepreneur from Frederick, no more than 30, 32 maybe, uh, full of, full of uh, enthusiasm, vigor. He doesn't want to give up. He said, I got your book, and yeah, I get it, and we need to do this. And so it, it's a question of gaining the knowledge, gaining the, the confidence, gaining the institutional background, um, gaining the willingness to say we can do it here. And you know, there's, uh, I, I'm a maritime nationalist, as I've said, so you can, you can divide by two or three if you want. But literally, literally, we have the nicest region in the world. Think about it. Think about the physical beauty. Think about going to work 10 minutes. Think about living in Toronto, typically you're an hour and a half going to work, an hour and a half home. Think of the quality of life. Think of quality of family life down here. Think of all the advantages. Think of the advantages of being small. Think of buying a house here that you can afford. And I could go on. There's so many good things about this region. And I think if we could focus on that and realize that we have serious challenges ahead with the aging population and all that, I understand that. But we have so many opportunities that we can grasp. And I would, if I were, if I were advising the three premiers, I'd say, look, 
the young 32-year-old or 30-year-old from Fredericton, a young entrepreneur starting with very little, just an idea and gumption and energy, I want to do something, that's, those are the people we need to support. And celebrate their successes? Yeah, absolutely. Much more than we do. Yeah. Much more than we And don't make it difficult for them to break into business. Don't. Support them. I, I would much rather support them than many other things that we're doing. And we need to listen to them too. To, to yeah, bring them in. Bring them in. Tell and us say what you need. This 32-year-old, I'm sure, I'm sure there's somebody on UMB campus that could help them. I'm certain of that. There's no connection. How do we connect that? It's How not do a matter we of just throwing money at a program. No. No, no, we've, we've had too much money thrown at the time. Times past. Yeah, yeah. yeah that the money is not, it's throwing money and throwing public servants at the program, at uh, the problem, uh, we wouldn't have a problem. Yeah. So it's, it's more than that. It's, yeah. it's, it's a willingness to, to do something. I want to be cognizant of your time. I want to be. No, no problem. Very, I'm, enjo I'm enjoying this. You've been uh, very gracious. Um, so I, I, I would like to talk to you again at, at some point. Point time after well, we have a deal. When my book comes out on the state of democracy, uh, you and I were going to sit down and do another podcast. That would be that would be excellent. I really enjoy that. Well, you, you have my word. We'll do it. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Donald Savah, for appearing on the Y Two State podcast. My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank great. you for having me. So that was my conversation with Donald Savoie, and one that I really enjoyed. As you heard near the end of the conversation, Donnell has just finished another book called The State of Democracy, and he's committed to appearing on another episode of the podcast once that book's been released, probably in the last half of 2019. I'm very much looking forward to reading that book and to speaking to Donnell once it's been released. Donnell mentioned Harrison McCain during our conversation, and he shared some colorful tales about McCain just after we stopped taping. Donnell actually wrote a book about Harrison McCain back in 2013, and to my delight, he couriered me a signed copy of the book about a week after our conversation. And due to the pile of books on my reading list, I've only just started it, but I'm enjoying it already. I want to sincerely thank Donald for being so gracious with his time and for making time for the podcast while he was visiting in Fredericton. I'll leave some places where you can find Donald's writing in the show notes for this episode. Finally, thanks to Matt Boudreaux for allowing me to use his music. Again, the song you heard was 800 Kilometres from his new album Goelan. I have another episode of the podcast in the pipeline and another conversation that I've really been looking forward to with Charles Theriot, and I hope to have that out during or just after the holiday season. I'll leave you today with an amusing story from Donald Savoie about his interaction with our new premier on election night this past September. Until next time, stay well and keep finding reasons why to stay. I didn't know Blaine Higgs. I had met him once or twice. Uh, he never called me during the campaign. Uh, the Premier did call me at one, at one time, but Blaine Higgs called me the night of the election. Okay. And I'm going to back up to say I am an incredibly devoted, committed Boston Red Sox fan. Incredibly <laughs> devoted. And I grew up in a very small Acadian village just north of Bukdosh. Mm -hmm. And I was nine years old, and my older sister brother-in-law took me to Boston. He knew I liked baseball, so he took me to Fenway Park. First time I had left this village. And wow. Fenway Park was, for say for Roman Catholics, like going to the Vatican. That was, I, was, I, I was a Red Sox fan before, but I was totally smitten by it. 
And so, I'm a, and I watch every game. So the night of the election, I was watching the Red Sox game. Because if the Red Sox won that night, they would have home game advantage. Right. The phone rang about 9.30, and it was Blaine Higgs. Donald Sidewalk, yes, Blaine Higgs. Hi, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing pretty good, the Red Sox are winning. <laughs> He said, well, that's not why I'm calling. 